That song that we just sang, the chorus, is the reason that we gather here today. If Jesus isn't alive, if He didn't ascend to the right hand of God and all the promises that He has extended, if they aren't true, then the world of faith wastes its time. Many times when we live in the process of darkness, we've been disappointed by life, by choices, other people. We have lost a job and we did nothing to deserve it. We get uh, overlooked. We had abuse when we were younger. All kinds of things can leave us in this gloom of despair that we feel like we can't break out of. And we wonder, is there a God who truly loves us? Is there power to break open the things that have like apprehended us and give us a new vista, a new view of hope? This is what brings us to the, the place that we are in the Gospel narrative. If you have your Bibles, I would like for you to open to John's Gospel, chapter 20. We've been journeying the, the final days, the, the final actions and words of Jesus before He hangs on a cross. It's a public display. It's a mockery. What feels like the death of a dream is looming over the people of God, the disciples. I want you to enter into their despair and the darkness that they're feeling. If you lived and, and followed and were pursuing a calling under this rabbi teacher that operated like God, imagine this. The man, Jesus, that you followed caused people who were blind to see. Those who, I often remind you when it says maimed in Scripture, ones who had lost their arms or, or legs, they watched them grow back before their very eyes. People were astounded at the power of Jesus. And then it builds to a culmination where approaching his final days, one of his friends, Lazarus, he, gives, he receives word, has died. Lazarus lies in a tomb for four days. He arrives what is seemingly late, and the sisters of Lazarus, they're grieving. They're upset with Jesus. Why did you delay? Why did you tarry? If you had been here, just like we've seen you do it time and again, our brother would not be dead. The disciples watched Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth. And this man who had been bound in linen cloths, who had been lying, decaying, walked out of the tomb alive and removes these cloths and begins to engage with the audience. This is the power that Jesus beheld as the only Son of God, fully God, that caused His enemies, Jesus' enemies, to want to kill Him. It says when they saw Jesus bring Lazarus to life, that that was when the crosshairs had been squarely faced on him and he would be living his final days. The disciples hear Jesus time and again mention that he will die, that he'll be crucified, and it will be for the life of, of many, all who would look upon Jesus for salvation. They don't understand, and we know the story. I'm not even going to read the account today, but Jesus is betrayed. He's taken before this council. He is convicted of crimes that he did not commit. They said he is blaspheming. He says he's God. Jesus answers in the affirmative, I am in my kingdom. It's not of this world. And then the story of him walking the Via Della Rosa. He is traveling through the, the, the busy courts, the marketplace of Jerusalem, and they take him just outside the city gates, the walls of Jerusalem, and they hang him up on a cross. And they kill him. They, they murder him for someone else's crimes. They treat him like a criminal. Now then, the disciples are left 
in utter despair for days. They've seen that his body was marred. It was destroyed. A spear was stuck in his side. Water ran out with blood, which meant that he was confirmed dead. His body was given to two men of uh, regal estate of renown, and they placed him in a tomb that was purchased by a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea. And he is placed there, and they are at a total loss. Have you been there before? You're living in the, sh- the, the valley of the shadow of death. When death visits our home, and no one in this room is exempt from that, we are left with a lot of questions that, that don't have answers. There's a well-known sociologist that is named Amitai Edzioni, and he wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times back in 2006, and he was responding to this idea of reflection on his wife's sudden passing. She was killed in a car accident years before in 1985. He struggled to understand it as a believer in Jesus. And then his son, who was 38 years old, died of a heart attack in the middle of the night, left behind a two-year-old son, a wife that was pregnant. And in this Ope had this article. He's writing about the eulogy that he had to give at this funeral. And he writes in this article, I divulge that I believed in a God who brings meaning to a world, but that my belief has been severely tested. I miss seeing God in the killing fields of Cambodia, and he seems too busy to show up in Danfar or to shine his face on either the Sunnis or the Shiites in Iraq. With a rising voice, I asked at the funeral, how could God allow a son to be taken from an aging and ailing father? How? A devoted husband to be torn from the arms of his loving wife in the middle of the night? How could he allow a two-year-old to be left searching for his father in vain or deny an infant the chance to see his father even once? These are the questions that the disciples are now asking as they are living in this state. Mary Magdalene, one of the followers, which we will kind of highlight her perspective, and one of the disciples named Thomas. Mary Magdalene was there at the cross. The Gospels tell us she is there in close proximity. Imagine being there and you can see the body hanging and it becomes lifeless. And his spirit ascends to heaven that he breathes his last. He's saying words like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In his final moments, he isn't speaking contempt against the crowds who wanted him dead. But she's there and undeniable, her rabbi, her teacher, her hope, the one that she had watched him deliver so many others, she believes, like others, cannot deliver himself. She watches his body taken down and taken to this tomb. The Gospel account in John 20, we're going to look at verse 1 through 2. Mary is going to go to take spices to anoint the body and to ensure that her Lord, that his dead body is honored. It says in verse 1 of chapter 20, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, who is John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Stop for just a moment. She has went to do this this act of grace towards Jesus' body. He's already been treated with disdain, with contempt. His body has been dismissive. She goes early seeking consolation that his body is 
still there, that she can just be near him, even if he has passed. And she is denied even this. She panics when she sees that the stone has been rolled away and she goes to the other disciples, Peter and John, come with me. Verse 3, So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been placed on Jesus' head, not lying with the other cloths, the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw, and it says he believed. Whereas they did not understand the Scriptures that he must rise from the dead, then the disciples went back to their homes. Peter and John, they disperse. They head home, not sure at this point what they're going to do and how they're going to respond. But as they arrive, there are three pieces of evidence that confirms that the resurrection happened. We can determine, just like they did, what they mean. But number one, the stone that was insurmountable, it was immovable. It is now rolled away. It was sealed with a a Roman seal. It could not be broken. Guards that would have been on place throughout the night that were commanded to be there so that the disciples couldn't come and steal the body and claim that he had ascended and had resurrected. They appear and they see these sequential things. Stone is gone. It's rolled away. Burial cloths that wrap Jesus' body, they're on the floor. His head covering that was very unique and particular, it was folded neatly, set aside from the others. These men see this, and it does not initially occur to them that Jesus has ascended, that he has risen, that he has come back to life. But John, the beloved disciple, it says, he sees that these signs are there, that the tomb is empty, and he accepts the evidence. It says he saw and he believed. Jesus has what is called a farewell discourse. He's telling them in advance that he's going to go. It's one thing to hear the words of Jesus, another thing to interpret them correctly. They didn't have the idea in mind that Jesus could possibly die, that his heart would stop beating, that he would be laid in a grave. But he said that his death would be the hour of his glorification, that it was by intention, it was by design. Which brings us to a a major foundational point, if you're taking notes, in observation of these men. Resurrection faith, which is what we're after today. I'm, I'm praying and hopeful that you will see the evidence. Resurrection faith means accepting that evidence. It's not just any evidence, but evidence which God provided that Jesus is risen and that He's alive. The evidence has been laid out. You have to decide for yourself what you make of it. Peter initially doesn't see it. John does. But it tells us in verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Now she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you crying? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was him. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, 
If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus is speaking to Mary, and she doesn't yet know that it's him. Sometimes when we are in a state of grief, we cannot connect the dots of of feelings. We feel totally numb. C.S. Lewis would write, just after his wife's untimely passing, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and, and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says. Have you been there? Have you felt that? You feel numb to the world. This is where Mary is. She can't hear anything. And this is the condition of everyone who does not live in light of resurrection faith. When death happens, you will feel a a numbness, a departure that, that separates you from what is around. Jesus says to her when she doesn't recognize him, says, Mary, just calls her name. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but, I go, to, but go to my brothers, the disciples, and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The next few verses say that he will breathe on the disciples when he meets them. He will give them, impart the Holy Spirit. For Mary, unlike John, John sees the the, the cloth, the face cloth, and that was evidence for him. But notice with Mary, it isn't until she hears his voice say her name that she hears. For Mary, it's the voice of the good shepherd that reveals his resurrection. She hears and accepts the evidence. You know, Jesus talked about that. said, my my sheep, my followers, they will be very... Uh, distinctive. They will know when it's me that's speaking. He said to the gatekeeper as he opens, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. Mary knew that it was Jesus because of his voice, not because of his appearance. This morning what I'm talking to you all about is a resurrection that applies to us. Right? This isn't just Jesus who will rise from the dead. He spoke about anybody who followed him and called upon his name and were faithful in this life that there would be a resurrection for us as well. What will it be like? Mary, who was so familiar with the way that he looked and his appearance on the cross, the last time she laid eyes on him, she would know what he looked like, right? Which means in hearing his voice and knowing that it's him, resurrection is transformation. It's not resuscitation. The the life that God gives us, it's a a new body. It's a new creation that is not of our physical order. Paul would write about it later when he's speaking about resurrection. What is sown is perishable, our human bodies, but what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in weakness, being sick, being afflicted, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. So Jesus Upon returning to them, he doesn't return in his former fashion, in his human body as they would expect. His resurrection, it's a new creation as it will be for all of us in this space who fell upon his name. i got to tell you, that is a huge consolation for me who I've got a grandmother who is aging. 
She's in her final, final years. And we have to, at some point with our loved ones, say goodbye or prepare ourselves to. Talking to the family yesterday of Rosalie Jones, for them, they, they know that she was a woman of faith. And so that changes things, doesn't it? If we know where our loved one, or even us for that matter, because there is no one who is exempt from facing death. At some point, we will all cease to exist on this earth. What is on the other side? Jesus describes it very much as a door that you pass through into an existence and a life that we can't even describe in human terms. Jesus tries. We can understand the idea of a nice home. We, we get the, the imagery of a mansion. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. But there are some things that we are not privy to that are elevated above our human pay grade. But this is where we stand as human beings, and that is the hope of eternal glory that I hold for my grandmother. That it isn't just a, a separation, but it is a, a homegoing. And that one day, if the Lord takes me this year, or it's 50 years from now, that my children and, and those who are near to me just like you, will know that you are moving and passing to a life that is an existence that is beyond what we can describe as bliss. This is what Jesus is framing in this moment for Mary, and she's discovering and finding out in real time by virtue of his voice. This is why she doesn't initially recognize him, is because Jesus has been transformed, not just resuscitated. This is part of the evidence that Jesus presents as God to his people, to you and I. Mary, it says in this account, did you read that? She takes hold of Jesus. This shouldn't be out of the ordinary. She thought he was gone and now she sees him. But the use of the, the Greek original, it's a present imperative tense. It emphasizes that Mary, she isn't just touching Jesus, but she is clinging to him. She's holding on to him so as to never let him out of her sight. Do you know the feeling when you are a parent and you lose a child in a marketplace? and you see them, you grasp a, a little tighter. You misplace something of value that was an heirloom, and you finally find it under a, a bookshelf, or you are vacuuming and you see it, and you possess it and you hold it a little more tight. This is Mary. She sees Jesus and she says, I'm not going to let you leave my side again. She clings to him, but Jesus says something, in particular, he says, do not cling to me. I have not yet ascended to heaven. What he is telling her is that there's a new spiritual relationship, Jesus is saying, between you and I. Now it's just not on earth where I'm walking with you and we feed the 5,000 and you get to eat and we uh, kind of fellowship in the same community, but now I'm going to be sending my Holy Spirit and we'll be together always. You don't have to worry about holding on to my body as though that is something to cling to as an heirloom to pass, out, pass down generation. He's saying that there is a new resurrection power that works in our community, Mary is holding on to the past. She wants Jesus just as he once was. She has not yet realized that he is returning from where he came. It says in verse 19, she goes and she tells. I find it fascinating. It's awesome that a woman is technically the first person to preach the gospel. She is the first one to declare the good news that he's alive. This is what he said. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were, this is the, the, the biggest understatement of Scripture, okay? 
He appears post-resurrection. It says, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That's quite ridiculous. They were ecstatic. Luke's gospel tells us that when he appears, he appears through the walls, through the doors. He doesn't even open the door and walk through. His body is a weird transition of metaphysical. It is spiritual, and yet they can grasp and see him. Luke 24 says that Jesus eats broiled fish in that room with them to prove that his power to overcome the grave, you're not just looking at a ghost. I'm with you. You can see and feel my embrace. You can see the the scars and the evidence that I have risen, and yet I am not the same. I'm not weakened. I didn't just recover from a mortal wound. But I'm back and I'm alive and I am in in full picture of power. They they see this and they are overwhelmed. It says in those verses that at that point Jesus breathes on them. They receive the Holy Spirit for ministry. But there's one disciple that is conveniently missing. Isn't that always the way that it goes? His name is Thomas. We don't know why he's not there. It says in verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. It's sad. He's going to hear them talk about what they experienced. So the other disciples, they tell him, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails on his wrists and place my hand into his side, I'm never going to believe. It's, it's not going to happen. Eight days later, imagine him having to like sit on that information. They've all seen and heard and experienced Jesus in his post-resurrection state. They've shared a meal with him. He's done some teaching, no doubt. Thomas is left out and he has to wait eight days. But eight days later, the disciples, they're inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The reality in this story as it concerns Thomas is he is no more doubtful than the others. Just like he is during that transition period, the eight days of hearing their account and him not having that, Prior to Jesus appearing to the disciples, they did not listen to what Mary was saying. When she said, I've seen the Lord, they didn't believe. They didn't necessarily believe when the two who were traveling on the road to Emmaus, remember this account? They're walking with Jesus and they don't know it's Him. And He's speaking to them and teaching. And then when they get to the home and He breaks the bread, they all of a sudden, their eyes, spiritual eyes are open and they realize that they're in His presence and they come and tell the disciples, And they're not buying it yet. We sometimes give Thomas a bad rap. How I learned about Thomas when I was a kid was Thomas, you know, the the doubter. Doubting Thomas. What a terrible name. He's not so much like these others. He's not very, very different. But if you will notice, he is rebuked by Jesus in a sense, not for his doubt, but for his unbelief. We doubt a lot of things. We need to see evidence. We need to have things perfectly line up in sequence for it to meet our criteria of what is true. But Jesus had already given them plenty of evidence, hadn't he? I would like to think, all of us, 
Wouldn't you like to think that if you were there and you watched Jesus call forth Lazarus, that you would believe whatever he said? If he said he was going to rise after three days, I would, I would like to think that I'd just be counting down the time, right? Like two days, we'll relax, we'll hide out. Sure, the Jews are trying to, to, to kill us because we're connected to Jesus, but we only have a matter of time. But the truth is, all of these followers of Jesus believed that he was dead. They did not believe that he was coming back. So it was huge shock value when he shows up and he says, isn't this what I said was going to happen? Which reveals for you and I this morning, much like what Thomas was having to experience, that those eight days of waiting and wanting our own kinds of proof and what we are truly going to believe, not what we doubt, but what we are choosing to believe is true. Thomas and Mary are every one of us in this space. I think back to Jesus before he raises Lazarus from the dead. He tells Martha, Martha is saying, okay, I believe that Lazarus can come back to life in the resurrection and not hearing that Jesus says it's about to happen before your very eyes. But Jesus makes one of the great I am statements. He says to her, not only am I the good shepherd, but I am the resurrection in the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Do you believe this? He asked Martha that. He, he leaves that as the final statement. Do you believe this? That is the lasting question for every one of us in this place. Because I, this morning, believe that Jesus did, in fact, rise. I believe what the Scripture said, that He appeared not only to the disciples after this, but He dwelled on earth for 40 days following this. For 40 days, He appeared to others. Paul would say He appeared to upwards of 500 people additional in his post-resurrection state, so that those would know without a doubt that he had risen to the extent that when Mary and Thomas and others are believing that he's dead and they're having to hide out because they're scared, once they see Jesus in this position, in this place, they would go on ministry and pursue to the ends of the earth people for this gospel message, this Easter faith. Upon Thomas hearing this, it's recorded in history that he goes to India He's the first one to take the gospel to countries that far east. These men and women would martyr themselves. They would be burned at the stake. Some would be crucified upside down. What is it to die for something that is not fully believable? i got to tell you, there's not, a, there's not a thing in this world that I would be willing to die for that is 99% true. I'll die for something that is 100% certain. But if there's even the the slight hint that it may not be, we will succumb to our doubts and we stop just short of sacrifice, right? We will. We do. That is us. We're human. It's one thing to give sacrificially to somebody else. It's one thing to give our life as well as a ransom as Jesus would call them to do, and they would do it. No one would follow Jesus to their death unless they had seen him and known for certain that this is not only what he has accomplished, but what it has been promised for you and I today. Which brings me to that question as we respond. Pastor Cameron, please. Jesus says not only do you believe this, that I'm the resurrection and the life, but who do you say that I am? This morning, you individually, not corporately, I don't get to stand on behalf of my kids one day at judgment. I would like to. 
I'd like to plead the case of those and stand in their place, right? The ones I love more than myself and tell Jesus at the judgment scene, God, spare my kids, whatever they've done, I'll stand in their place. I can't. But there was one who did. It was Christ. The reality is we all have to decide for ourselves what evidence we are willing to accept and believe in that which we will not believe, like Thomas. Their confession of faith brings us to what is the pinnacle of this entire gospel story. The whole book of John has been building for this one singular moment when he would appear to them and would disclose and launch them into what would be the ministry of reconciliation, bringing people who are lost back to Christ. This morning, if you are a person who is wayward, you've never made that decision, that choice, because it seemed like it's untimely. It's just not right. Listen, you and I are not promised this afternoon. We could exit out of this building and get on the road and be blindsided. We could experience a heart attack that comes sudden like this man who's writing this article. He's grieving the darkness and despair, living in the shadow of death, not seeing the light on the end of the tunnel. But we, for those who know Christ, have been offered this free gift of salvation. We never have to fear. You don't have to worry. That is why this morning, Resurrection Sunday, is so important. The Apostle Paul would say that it is of the most importance. He writes of the first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. If we don't believe the resurrection, if you stop short of it, you believe a lie. If you believe that Jesus was just simply an itinerant teacher, that he was inspired by God, but he wasn't God himself, you are living in sin and separation, and doom is impending. It's bearing down on you like a truck. Will you make the choice today to bow the knee, submit to Christ, be saved, and live the rest of your life in total freedom, surrender?